Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we chatted with the breakout comic book star, heard new music from Chicago's leading shoegaze festival, and discussed the death of the midlist in publishing. All this, plus the new season of Size Matters, The Trump Diaries, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for the week of November 15th, 2019. John Daly chatted with comic book author David Pepos about his smash hit book, Spencer and Locke. Pepos talked about his career path from fan to editor and reviewer and finally to creator and how a comic book is put together. Pepos also discussed the coming Spencer and Locke film and what's up next. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. Calling in from Los Angeles, California, David Pepos is with us. He's a comic book writer. His latest book is Going to the Chapel. He's also written Spencer and Locke, and he's got a pretty interesting story of how he broke into the business. David, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, it's good to hear from you again, man. It's been a long time, and we really appreciate you taking time out to uh, speak with us today. Oh, please. No, it's my, it's my pleasure to be on board. And um, yeah, no, I, I feel like everything's come full circle. I've, I've known uh, uh, Jamie for a very long time, and I'm, I'm, I was honored when he asked me to be on the show. That's great. Thanks for being here. Yeah, so tell us, you know, your story of how you got involved in comic books uh, in the first place is, is pretty great because, uh, you know, John and I are both comic book fans. You've been a longtime comic book fan, and you worked in comic book journalism for a little while. Could you talk to people about how you were able to go from somebody that loved the medium into somebody that, you know, got paid for writing stories and, and producing books that you love? Wait, we get paid for these things? Well, uh, no, I'm not very much. I, 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 yeah, I... I no, so, you know, uh, most people, you, you look at their career, career trajectories and you think it's a straight line. Mine's more of a zigzag. Um, I actually got my start at DC Comics. Uh, I was an intern there in college. And, uh, uh, of course, I was in college when the recession started. So there were no jobs. There's nothing like that. Um, but I did meet Janelle Aslan, who had just been hired as an assistant editor in the Batman line. And she was an alumni uh, at Newsarama, which is uh, an Eisner Award-winning comic book news site. And she had been a reviewer over there. So uh, thanks to Janelle, she put me in touch with her editor, uh, Troy Brownfield, who really became kind of my mentor um, uh, over the span of a decade. Uh, I became a, a reviewer over at Newsarama, and then I sort of rose up the ranks to become the reviews editor. And um, yeah, it was, it was kind of the perfect training to, to being a comic book writer. I was able to kind of uh, really analyze what I liked about comics, what I didn't, be able to kind of synthesize that into my own creative voice. Um, and yeah, I think speaking to what you were saying earlier about how do you make that leap from being, you know, going from journalist to, to creator, uh, I had been reading a lot of books that hadn't connected with me. And I sort of had that voice kind of build up in the back of my head saying, well, if you're so smart, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? And sort of, you know, like the frog in the pot, I kind of dipped my toe in. I, I, I wrote a, a first issue script, and I really liked that. And So I wrote a treatment, and I really enjoyed that. And I, I found an artist to put together some pitch pages, and I really enjoyed that process. And by the time I started pitching it around, uh, my first book, Spencer and Locke, I really had no idea it was going to turn into anything. I kind of just figured I would shop it around, and that would be that. And Suddenly, I pitched it to uh, Action Lab Comics, and they asked me, how soon do you think you can get this thing finished? And that's when that cold chill kind of went down my spine. And I said, oh, i got to make this book now. I actually have to write the whole thing. And that's kind of that, that very small snowball effect that kind of turned into a giant snow boulder and uh, turned into uh, uh, my career, I guess. So that's interesting. You know, Spencer and Locke is a, is a beautiful book. 
you know, Thank it's you. kind of striking in the beginning when you first see the artwork, the noir, um, very stylized um, um, book. I dive into that process. You know, you you find out that that this is you know going to get green light lighted, and uh, how far yeah. did you write the arc out and uh, and and know where it was going? Sure. Well, uh, before I even pitched it around, um, I had written the whole first issue uh, just to show my my, my artist uh, Jorge Santiago Jr. And I had actually written what's what's called a treatment of the whole first arc. And so basically, that's the book report version. It's breaking down issue to issue, just a, a, a kind of a brief summary of what would happen in a particular issue. So, issue one, for example, we introduce the characters. We introduce um, uh, murder victim Sophie Jenkins, and um, it ends with. Uh, Spencer and Locke kind of going head-to-head against um, uh, Stanley, uh, a local enforcer. Whereas the second issue, I said, oh, Locke, you know, uh, runs face-to-face with a former babysitter, uh, Ramona, and it ends with a car chase. And so kind of a, a, a little bit more uh, fleshed out than, uh, you know, just a, a, a bare-bones outline, but enough to give me room to kind of improvise a little bit uh, as the script went on. Um, what's interesting is I had an idea for uh, our next two arcs already. Uh, I, I had sort of a quick log line planned for that already, even before I pitched uh, the book to Jorge, um, thinking, oh, if this thing actually took off, what would we do for a, a sequel? So in our case, if we did, what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City for our first series, we kind of took it across the funny pages for volume two. We did hard-boiled Calvin and Hobbes versus hardcore Beetle Bailey. Um, or in the case of our upcoming third arc that I'm still writing, uh, you know, what would a, a, a serial killer version of Garfield look like, for example? Um, and, well, I don't uh, want to taste know, that I, lasagna. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, it, you know, he, he, the killer strikes on Mondays. Um, and it, it, it was sort of, you know, having, having enough structure to know that I'm not completely adrift, but having just enough wiggle room that I can improvise and sort of uh, reveal more characterization and theme as the book progresses, that tends to be my, my writing style a little bit. Um, you know, a little bit of, of hardcore planning and a little bit of flying by the seat of my pants. That's pretty interesting. Jamie had mentioned that that uh, there was an option potentially. Had you thought about this being any other type of uh, medium from the beginning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's funny. I when I first wrote Spencer and Locke, I actually thought it was going to be kind of one of those series that was impervious to uh, to, to multimedia. I, I wrote it specifically. Uh, I wanted to be a comic for comics fans by comics fans, and I found over the process of of, uh, of Spencer and Locke and, and and with going to the chapel and uh, my, my my other upcoming books is I, I find the number one thing to get for Hollywood becoming interested in your book is that it's just, it's a good book. If you can make it a quality product that people like, and there's a bit of a, a, a following behind it, um, the concepts don't, it, it's not about the concepts anymore. And it's not even about, um, it's about just making the best book you possibly can and the rest will follow from there. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think there are certain things that uh, film and television can do that comics can't and vice versa. And so, um, yeah, we've had some very exciting developments with Spencer and Locke. Um, I, I can't go into too many specific details other than saying, uh, you know, we, we are we are pushing very hard to get in our, our boys on a screen. And um, we've, we, we've partnered up with some very cool people to, to, to hopefully get us to that point. So uh, it's, it's been very exciting. 
Yeah, I, you know that brings up something. You know, I was wondering. Your your book is also kind of a, a meta take on comics because it's comic books crossing over to the newspaper funny pages in a number of instances. Yeah. and it's a, yeah. it's a take on the stuff that we all grew up with. You know, I mean, obviously Spencer and Locke are are uh, versions of Calvin and Hobbes, as you've you know, sure. mentioned already, uh, yeah. as if they were a, a bit dark. But right. w- is that does that create a problem for? Um, doing it, for example, for a TV show or a film show? I mean, are there rights that have to be optioned? I'm just kind of curious about that. Sure. No, well, you know, uh, thankfully, um, you know, because Calvin and Hobbes, because Spencer and Locke, it, it's, it's rooted in parody. Uh, you know, the, the book would not be able to right. exist if it wasn't a parody. And so thankfully that, that falls under fair use. And something that I, I have found very interesting in the process of development is, um, you know, there are certain things that are in the comic, and there are certain things that are in, you know, the multimedia version, and not everything always makes the final cut. Um, so I, I think, you know, by by virtue, it's, it's sort of the medium is the message, right? right. And so, you, you know, by having this as a comic, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's just, a, a, you know, a cousin to the newspaper comic strip, um, you're able to sort of, in, you know, take that inference of, oh, Bill Watterson, Calvin and Hobbes, Whereas you make that leap to multimedia, you lose, you do lose that, um, you know, in the fact that like it, the the references don't necessarily land, you know, that jump in, in media, uh, uh, you 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 gain certain things and you lose certain things. And for me, the most important thing is, um, you know, while while it's absolutely a, a meta commentary, you know, I, I, I people always say, you know, write what you know, and I thought, well, I knew comics. Um, but I think the themes that kind of, uh, you know, uncovered themselves as I wrote the book, it's very much, it's about trauma, and it's about child, you know, uh, you know the, the, the scars you grow up with as a child and the ways that your mind kind of circumvents those scars. And we ask ourselves as adults, you know, are we, are we always going to be shaped and driven by our scars, the things in our past that we don't like to think about, or can we possibly transcend them? And I think that's the thing that ultimately I would love to see uh, in any multimedia adaptation. I mean, I love Bill Watterson. He's a pioneer and he's a trailblazer. He's an innovator. And he is one of the most beloved cartoonists in, in my lifetime for a reason. But ultimately, those winks and nods and Easter eggs, they're, they're secondary to me uh, in terms of what Spencer and Locke is really about, and I think what the lasting impact of it is, and we're sort of able to take these touchstones of our childhood and kind of take it through this darker lens and seeing, you know, maybe the good old days aren't as good as we thought, and, you know, maybe we need to let those good old days go if we want something a little bit better in our future.
Chuck Mertz spoke to Jason Pine about the use of meth in post-industrial America. Pine discusses a population of workers left behind by work, meth is an industrial poison in a long series of industrial poisons in our environment, and a way to be alive under a system that doesn't care about killing us. This is Hell airs twice a week, every Sunday and Thursday at 10. What happens when the American dream is haunted by the nightmare of meth? How do skilled, well-paid industrial workers who are weekend DIY tinkers in their garage become meth lab cooks? Here to take us on a guided tour of the world of meth, professor of anthropology and media studies at Purchase College, State University of New York, Jason Pine is author of The Alchemy of Meth, A Decomposition. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jason. Thank you, and thanks so much for this invitation. Jason also wrote the 2012 book, The Art of Making Do in Naples, which examines how underemployed aspiring singers become entangled with the Camorra, the region's powerful and volatile organized crime networks. I only mention that because that sounds like a fascinating book, Jason, and I'm very upset that I didn't know of that book when it came out because I would have definitely had you on our show. You write while following the local news and chatting with students and people in town. One subject constantly circulated where you were teaching, and that was home meth labs. There was uh, talk of strange hoarding activity, peculiar shopping behaviors at Walmart and Walgreens, and suspicious gatherings and trash piles in the woods. There were reports of homes colonized by meth cooks while the owners were on vacation, bizarre property crimes, exploding trailers, and the horrid discovery of what had been hidden inside. Emaciated, toothless tweakers, stockpiled guns and ammunition, and abused children. There were many concerns among these rumors and truths that drew my attention, but what unsettled me most was the fact that so many people were making meth. Unnumbered cooks were transmuting ordinary household products into an elixir that radically transformed the way people lived, worked, and died. How obvious do you think it is to people working at Walmart that the people who are buying these household products are buying them to make meth? How obvious is the meth industry in counties like the uh, pseudonym name that you give to this one, St. Jude's County. How obvious is the meth industry? Well, people get accustomed to the aesthetics, the appearance of people who are engaged in meth cooking, and they develop a sensibility where they can recognize the signs of what's going on. So it can be quite obvious. Oh. There, yeah, and there are many signs. Yeah, so... Um, why St. Jude? You write, the stories I recount take place in a northeastern Missouri county I call St. Jude, a pseudonym, the county that annually ranked first in the state for meth lab bus. Why was this the number one place in Missouri? I said earlier in the United States, that was a mistake on my part. In Missouri, why St. Jude? Why do you think that ended up being the number one county in Missouri with the most meth lab bus? Well, the reasons are always multiple and complicated. And I can only conjecture based on what I've researched and read. Um, initially, it was popular because of the landscape of poverty, of deindustrialization. Although I prefer the term late industrialism because this is a place with an ongoing process of deindustrialization, whereas more metropolitan areas have replaced the industrial labor force with uh, other kinds of new economy forms of labor like information information based forms of labor 
But in places like these, the, this is an ongoing process where there are still factories or uh, that are operative or, or inoperative, but still producing or have still left behind them the ecological injury of their operations. And new jobs, new opportunities haven't come to replace them. So people are sort of left in the lurch. So this primes people for a DIY kind of sensibility. Already it exists in places like rural Missouri where people have a facility with uh, manual labor or fixing things or doing it yourself, homesteading, hunting, dressing your catch. And also a kind of familiarity with everyday household chemicals, or at least what's more everyday in that region. So people don't really shy away from those kinds of, um, those products. And then there are just many other reasons that concatenate with those to make this a possibility of a lot of meth production. One of, one of the things I was thinking about during, I mean, not only when I was reading your book, but also just during your response, is that uh, it seems like what meth did was it filled an economic or an industrial vacuum. It filled an employment vacuum. It filled a financial vacuum for the area that it was had been created because of the, uh, at least the slowing down, the ending of industrialization. Do you think that something like meth was inevitable when that new economy did not come about? Do you think that an illegal economy was unavoidable and inevitable when we changed from industrialization to this more service uh, information industry economy? Yes, I wouldn't say inevitable, but I think the potential was very strong. I've seen this also in Naples. Informal economies spring up to fill a gap when there's a need. And I think what was more, maybe not more, but equally important in this scene with meth cooking is that meth also provides a a physical embodied sense of hope, of energy, and a sense of being productive and useful and capable, which is also an important lack that people experience when they're underemployed or unemployed, marginalized. Yeah, that was one of the more fascinating things I found in your book is how meth would give people hope, meth would give people freedom. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But you write that St. Jude held the national record for meth lab bus for most of two decades, but these statistics do not necessarily justify the county's identity as the meth capital of the United States. The statistics gloss over the complexities of the political and economic geography that makes measuring meth lab incidents possible or desirable in any given county or state, rather than revealing the extraordinariness of one area of the United States states. The statistics obscure the intricacies of narco-capitalism, how drugs are entangled with broader economic interests, and of narco-politics, how concerns about drugs are woven into forms of governance, particularly policing. And I don't think these are two terms that people come in contact with or consider very much. So narco-capitalism, how drugs are entangled with broader economic interests. I'm familiar with an economically depressed area that prior to marijuana becoming legalized had a very large number of marijuana home growers. I was told by many that the police simply didn't care about these home grow operations because 
They understood the financial desperation of their neighbors. Many believe that without the marijuana growing, the area would have a far worse economic crisis. Do you did you see or witness any of that in Missouri? That the police seem to be turning a blind eye. Law enforcement seem to be turning a blind eye because they understood the importance, the necessity of an illegal industry to the people they were trying to serve and protect? Uh, Not exactly a blind eye, but um, I could say that in the county where I worked, there was particular interest in focusing mainly, sometimes mostly, on methamphetamine busts. Part of that was because there was encouragement uh, through the structure of policing and enforcement in general that they could get more funding um, if they achieved a certain number of busts. As well, they received media attention and there was the possibility of a, a reality TV show, I'm trying to remember the name, I think it was Meth Busters. And there was a pilot that was launched and I think maybe a, an episode, it never really got off the ground but this also established some of the notoriety and and the very real capacity of law enforcement to do their job, which I think they're doing very difficult work. But it's it's somewhat gratifying to have that recognized, albeit in a reality TV show. It's not the greatest way to do it. Um, but also... Sh- the methamphetamine problem was so diffused and so part of everyday life for residents all over the state that in a sense, I can imagine it would feel good to know that law enforcement is doing its job and publishing its results, putting all of the addresses of meth lab busts on their website, which is what they did in that county, can have a dual effect it can make you feel like, yes, people are concerned about this problem, the people who have the capacity to do something about it. It could also highlight the problem and make you feel a lot of discomfort. It can also stigmatize the place. And of course, I could also be participating in that, which is why I'm also concerned about the problem of statistics and nomenclature like meth capital and Missouri in general as being particular in in terms of this phenomenon. One thing I'm trying to do with this book and talking to you now is say this isn't a problem about Missouri and it isn't even a problem about meth. It's this is one way of talking about and noticing something that's much more widespread. And I think you're already onto it with your show in general which is capitalism. Whoa, traffic's backed up all the way down Morgan, and I see why. Uh, Looks like your buddy is at it again. Don't call him my buddy. Kyle, what are you doing? Jess, you're just in time. Let's do a new episode about this. About you washing cars? Well, this is the Seisman Sudski Festival, a semi-annual Bridgeport quasi-celebrity car wash and laundry. 
I do it every time. Oh, uh, hold up. Car wash and laundry? Yes, exactly. People bring the dirty clothes to me. I soap them up and I wash the car with them. I got all the neighborhood heroes involved. Uh, over there is a guy who played uh, music on John Daly's show once. How do you do? Go away. And of course, we got Steve from Bernice's. Hi, Jess. Oh, hey, Steve. Oh, well, this seems weirdly pragmatic for you, Kyle. Yes, I know. And just for a few bucks, all Bridgeporters can come to the GoPro Alley for a car and laundry wash. It's like the only time I ever clean anything. Impressive crowd you got here. Man, I've been doing this for years. Where does the other end of that hose go? Oh, I just ran it through the mail slot up to Eric's place. <laughs> he never notices, but it's on the DL, so. Actually, here, hold the, hold the hose for a minute. I gotta do this. Oh. oh my god. For the listeners, I should explain. Please don't. Kyle, are you wearing a bikini? Are you wearing my bikini? Hey, I found it on the floor fair and square. Whose floor? Jamie's. I live there too. That's also my floor. Yeah, but you rent. You don't own it. So like, you know, whatever, right? Not a thing. I definitely don't want that back. And now what my audience has been waiting for. That's more technically impressive than I would have thought possible. I have to say, everyone's mesmerized by... Is that my blouse? I wonder, are you washing that car with my clothes? don't blame me. Jamie said he didn't want the car wash. He just wanted the laundry dead. Oh, here comes the meltdown. I answer the phone. Jamie, I cannot believe you let Kyle wash the car with my clothes. They ain't clothes, the laundry. Gotta go... This week on the Trump Diaries, impeachment proceedings kick off in public as Trump seethes, Barr declines to clear Trump, John Bolton says he has a lot of evidence, Trump admits fraud with his nonprofit, DACA appears to be in trouble, the EPA is neutered, and Trump Jr. gets triggered right off the stage. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1022, November 7th. Trump asked Attorney General William Barr to hold a press conference and say that he didn't break the law during his July 25th call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Barr declined. Trump then tweeted he did not ask Barr to hold a news conference and that it was a made-up story and that anyway, the Justice Department already ruled that the call was good. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton said he is willing to defy the White House and testify in the House impeachment inquiry. Bolton has, however, joined a lawsuit between the Trump administration and Congress asking for guidance on whether he can testify. Bolton told investigators he has knowledge of many other conversations about Ukraine and other matters damaging to Trump. Separately, a State Department official told House investigators he kept copious notes. George Kent said he witnessed, quote, an effort to initiate politically motivated prosecutions that were injurious to the rule of law. Kent also accused Rudy Giuliani of conducting a campaign of lies about the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, that led to her early recall from Kiev. Kent's note-taking was explicitly criticized by Trump at the time. A new book claims that senior Trump administration officials considered resigning en masse last year to sound an alarm about Trump's conduct. The book, A Warning, also contains a handful of assertions that are not backed up with evidence, including the claim that Vice President Mike Pence supported removing Trump under the 25th Amendment, and another that said Trump wanted to remove federal judges from office. 
Roger Stone lied to Congress about his efforts to contact WikiLeaks during the 2016 campaign because, quote, the truth looked bad for Donald Trump. Stone's trial began today, and prosecutors said it was about Stone's false testimony to the House Intelligence Committee in an attempt to obstruct the investigation and to tamper with evidence. A New York state judge has ordered Trump to pay $2 million in damages to nonprofit groups after he admitted misusing money raised by the Donald J. Trump Foundation to promote his presidential bid, pay off debts, and purchase a portrait of himself for one of his hotels. Trump was also forced to submit a detailed admission of misconduct. Trump then tweeted a denial of that admission, claiming falsely that he was, quote, the victim of the political hacks in New York State, that the foundation had given 100% of the funds to great charities, and that he had suffered four years of politically motivated harassment by the New York Attorney General's office. Quote, all they found was incredibly effective philanthropy and some small technical violations. None of that is true. And Ivanka Trump went off script, saying the identity of the whistleblower, something Trump has repeatedly demanded, was not particularly relevant. She just worried about the motivation behind all of this. Day 1023, November 8th. Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney has refused to comply with a subpoena. Mulvaney informed investigators one minute before his scheduled deposition that he would not appear, citing absolute immunity. It is unclear if Mulvaney actually has immunity, as he publicly admitted that Trump froze military aid to Ukraine to pressure the country to open a political investigation into Joe Biden's son. That legally waived that immunity. Mulvaney also told everyone to get over it. The senior diplomat to Ukraine told House investigators that Trump demanded three words on television from the Ukrainian president. Those words were investigations, Biden and Clinton. Ukrainians have been told that the resumption of $400 million in military aid would not occur until President Zelensky made that televised statement. The former mayor of New York, billionaire Michael Bloomberg, is planning to enter the Democratic presidential primary. Bloomberg is filing the appropriate paperwork in at least one state. Bloomberg's entry could blow up the Democratic race. He is known for centrist views and close ties to the political establishment. He would present an immediate challenge to the current frontrunner, Joe Biden. The United States and China have agreed on an initial trade deal that would roll back a portion of the tariffs placed on each other's products, which is a significant step. The commitment marks the first time Trump has agreed to remove any of the tariffs slapped on $360 billion worth of Chinese goods. And Donald Trump Jr. worried about, quote, all the sacrifices we'd have to make to help my father succeed after visiting Arlington National Cemetery. Trump Jr. wrote in a new book that his family had suffered after, quote, voluntarily giving up a huge chunk of our business and all international deals to avoid the appearance that we were, quote, profiting off the office. Trump reported income of $438 million last year alone and still maintains sizable international deals. Day 1024, November 9th. A National Security Council official testified there was a good chance Russia had compromising material on Trump during the 2016 election. Fiona Hill, who worked with National Security Advisor Bolton, added she and her boss believed it impacted Trump's interactions with Russia. The famous Steele dossier said, in fact, Russia did have compromising information on Russia, which Trump has denied. Rudy Giuliani was paid $500,000 to investigate Trump's political rivals. The money came from Charles Gucciardo, a Republican donor and Trump supporter, who gave the money to Lev Parnas as part of a deal that would make Gucciardo an investor in Parnas's company, the richly named Fraud Guarantee. Fraud Guarantee does not appear to have any customers. Giuliani is currently under federal investigation for possible foreign lobbying violations. Parnas has been indicted for alleged campaign finance and foreign money laundering violations. 
and Donald Trump Jr. and partner Kimberly Guilfoyle were chased off stage at the University of California while promoting Trump Jr.'s new book. They were chased off by far-right protesters. The protesters subsequently called it an absolute disaster. Quote, we wanted to ask questions about immigration and about Christianity, but they didn't want to face those questions. Day 1025, November 10th. The former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, claimed that two of Trump's senior advisors undermined and ignored him. Haley also claims that former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and White House Chief of Staff John Kelly sought to recruit her to work around and subvert Trump, but she refused. Quote, Kelly and Tillerson confided to me that when they resisted the president, they weren't being insubordinate, they were trying to save the country. The president didn't know what he was doing. Tillerson also told her that people would die if Trump was left unchecked. Bolton suggested that Trump's foreign policy is largely motivated by personal financial interests. In a speech made to a private group, Bolton said he believes there is a business relationship dictating Trump's position on Turkey because none of his advisors are aligned with him on the issue. Bolton pointed to a property in Istanbul that is owned by the Trump Organization. Ivanka Trump attended the opening of that property with Turkish President Recep Erdogan in 2012. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services hired about 40 former Trump White House and campaign employees on a $2.25 million annual contract. That is unusual because that work is traditionally handled by CMS's own communications department. Trump announced he would restrict the amount of scientific and medical research the EPA can use to inform public health regulations. A new draft of the Orwellian named Strengthening Transparency and Regulatory Science Proposal would require scientists to disclose all raw data, including confidential medical records, before the EPA would consider the conclusions of a study. Since many epidemiological studies depend on the parsing of confidential medical records, and since the release of those records is illegal under the HIPAA Act, the result of the move would actually be to undermine the science itself. The new proposal would also apply retroactively to all current public health regulations. The measure would make it more difficult to enact new clean air and water rules. Studies that have been used for decades may now be inadmissible when existing regulations come up for renewal. And Trump claimed Ivanka Trump personally created 14 million new jobs. He then repeated that claim twice. The entire U.S. economy has created fewer than 6 million new jobs since Trump took office. Day 1026, November 11th. Trump wanted to fire the intelligence community's inspector general for reporting the whistleblower's complaint to Congress. Trump doesn't understand why Michael Atkinson shared that complaint and believes Atkinson, whom he himself employed in 2017, is disloyal. Atkinson believed the complaint, which outlined how Trump pressured Ukraine to investigate a political rival as he was withholding military aid from the country, was legitimate and genuine. A senior defense official told the House last month the Pentagon sought clarification from Trump on July 18th about the holdup of aid to Ukraine. Quote, we called around NSC to state these are our usual colleagues, said Laura Cooper. No one would tell us why. The Government Accountability Office is now reviewing the Trump's administration's hold on security assistance to Ukraine to see if the freeze violated appropriations law. Trump has dealt another legal blow as a federal judge dismissed his lawsuit against the New York Attorney General and the House Ways and Means Committee. That lawsuit was another loss in Trump's efforts to keep his tax returns under wraps. And a senior Trump administration official was found to have grossly exaggerated her resume. State Department official Mina Chang claimed to be a Harvard Business School alumna who ran a nonprofit that worked in 40 countries. She invented a role on a UN panel, claimed she had addressed both the Democratic and Republican national conventions, and implied she had testified before Congress. Chang even created a fake Time magazine cover with her face on it. 
Day 1027, November 12th. The Supreme Court's conservative majority appeared ready to side with Trump in his efforts to shut down the DREAM Act program, also known as DACA. The program is protecting around 700,000 young immigrants known as DREAMers. While lower courts dealt Trump a string of losses, the conservative justices indicated they would not second-guess Trump's reasoning and in any event considered his explanation sufficient. Trump canceled the program largely because it had begun under President Obama. And House Republicans said their impeachment survival strategy will simply to be throwing Rudy Giuliani under the bus. Axios quoted a senior strategist as saying, quote, this is not an impeachment of Rudy Giuliani. It's not an impeachment of Ambassador Sunland. It's an impeachment of the President of the United States. So the point is, as long as it's a step removed, he's in good shape. If it's a step removed from the President, he doesn't lose any Republicans in the House. Trump's senior policy advisor promoted xenophobic story ideas about white nationalism, white genocide, and eugenics-era immigration laws to Breitbart News. Stephen Miller sent Breitbart editors 900 emails in 2015 and 2016. Miller is the architect of Trump's immigration policies. In England, the opposition Labour Party reported a sophisticated and large-scale cyber attack on its digital systems from an unknown source. The attack has major overtones because the Tory government has not yet published a report on alleged Russian interference in British politics, which leaks have shown ties major conservative figures to Russian oligarchs. Russia also ran a major influence campaign during the Brexit referendum. Mick Mulvaney withdrew an unusual request to join a federal lawsuit seeking a decision on whether Trump, Trump officials can be compelled to testify. Mulvaney's legal team notified the court that he planned to file his own lawsuit seeking court guidance, ironically putting him in the position of suing Trump, who was named in the suit. Mulvaney's lawyers later said a court filing that after further consideration, he will instead obey Trump's orders to refuse to cooperate. In a related story, Trump apparently has been talked out of firing Mulvaney, who he has openly panned. Trump and The Apprentice creator have discussed an apprentice White House after Trump leaves the office. Trump and Mark Burnett reportedly still keep in touch by phone. Trump has also told associates he misses his job as a reality TV host. And Trump wants to attend Russia's military parade celebration in May, but has told aides he is worried that the parade falls during the middle of, quote, political season. Day 1028, November 13th. Public impeachment proceedings began today in the House at 9 a.m. It is just the fourth time in the history of America that Congress has begun such proceedings. Testifying today were William Taylor, the acting administrator in Kiev, Ukraine, and State Department Deputy Assistant Secretary George Kent. Taylor has previously testified that Trump was adamant about the need for a public announcement of investigations by the Ukrainian president. Kent corroborated that. Taylor testified today that a phone call between Trump and U.S. Ambassador to Trump testified that a phone call between Trump and the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, was overheard by a member of Taylor's staff. In that call, Trump purportedly asked about the investigations. Sondland told him that the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. After the call, the aide asked Sondland what the president thought of Ukraine. Sondland responded that Trump, quote, cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for. Kent testified that Giuliani conducted a smear campaign against the United States ambassador to Ukraine and led an effort to gin up politically motivated investigations. Trump spent the run-up to the day binging on Fox News and repeatedly claiming he did nothing wrong because Ukraine ultimately received the aid he withheld. In fact, the aid was only released after the CIA's top lawyer made a criminal referral to the Department of Justice about the July phone call on the same day House Democrats announced they were opening an inquiry into the matter. The White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham dismissed the impeachment hearing in a tweet, calling it not only boring, but a colossal waste of taxpayer time and money. 
Jared Kushner wants to set up webcams along the U.S.-Mexico border so people can live stream the construction of the border wall. Officials from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers pushed back, pointing out that would make proprietary techniques of the contractors visible to their competitors. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 spoke to author Christine Sneed about her short stories and recent work in Hollywood. Sneed, a classic mid-list author, discusses the death of traditional publishing, how journals have replaced magazines, and whether or not sushi is a con. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Talking about celebrity, it, it interests me because you said something uh, a couple minutes ago about your own celebrity or lack thereof. It's a, it's a strange thing to be writing right now, especially writing short stories, uh, because there aren't that many places that are publishing short stories. I have a very elaborate rant about that that I'm not going to go into right now. <laughs> but um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the the pleasures and the disappointments of it. Because you know we have, obviously, this is close to our 75th show, if, if not than, past yeah. that. And and every author oh, we've talked great. to uh, has, has mentioned, you know, some, some of them are, are wildly famous, you know, and, and some of them are very successful, selling millions of copies. And some of them are, are not. You know, they're happy mm-hmm. to sell or, or unhappy to sell, as the case may be, 50 to 100 books. What, what for you represented a way that you found success and fulfillment at the the level that you you attained, because I would you you seem like a mid list author, you know, which mm-hmm. in the old days That's was accurate. A, yeah, which in the old in the old days was actually a very um, not lucrative, but it was a it was a living. A living yeah, yeah it, it was a very stable living, and and today I think the industry has changed so much, and this is something we discuss in the show frequently, that it's now very difficult to be picked up as a, as a mid list author. Have have you? I mean, are you still under contract oh, I have with a lot Bloomsbury? To say about that. Please do. Oh, We'd yeah. love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not under contract with Bloomsbury anymore, and I sold Virginity of Famous Men and my third book, Paris, he said, which is a novel, together in July of 2013. So the story collection was already written. I usually write stories sort of in tandem with longer-form fiction, and um, so that book was pretty much done. And then Paris, he said, was I'd written the first 100 pages when I when I sold the two together with my, when my agent, of course, was the one who made the sale. But um, since then... Despite having, you know, you know, I've had really good reviews for all of my books, which I've felt very fortunate, uh, you know, for that. But um, for whatever reason, and there are many, many reasons, as I'm sure you guys know, it's hard to sell books. And most of the time, like I learned this not long ago, I actually teach a publishing industry class at Northwestern. And one of the things I learned is that books like, for example, Gone Girl or All the Light, uh, we cannot see which are two, you know, na- novels that were extremely successful commercially. Um, those books everyone knows about because most people, if they read it all, read like one or two books a year. So, and they often tend to read the same books. So, those books sell hugely because word of mouth and also bookstores like Barnes and Noble, the only national chain now, they, you know, really emphasize those books and they're up front and center and those are deals that they work out with the publishers so people go into the bookstore and they buy those books and they read them and they talk about them but most books on average you're lucky to sell a thousand copies so um i have sold more than that i think for each of my books i'm not positive but you know i i have done okay but i'm in a position now where i still publish stories and journals quite a bit um and I'm really happy about that. But, you know, those don't reach a lot of people. So you just, 
get them out there and then maybe some other writers read them and maybe they end up in the best American short stories if you're extremely lucky or the O. Henry Prize stories. Those anthologies come out once a year. But I have not been able to sell a new book and um, I'm still writing them, but I've gotten to the point where we're just sort of now trying to go to independent presses because they have now sort of taken the overflow of all the authors like me in New York who haven't been able to sell their manuscripts and because our sales figures aren't good. There are, you know, other reasons probably. Um, there, There's just, you know, a lot of houses also admit, like, it's hard to sell fiction. We're better off selling political books right now because everyone is so focused on D.C. and what the president's doing every day. Right. And... So, yeah, I mean, it's been, I guess the rewards have been that when I talk to someone like you guys or I do readings or I talk to students and they've read some of my work, it's, we have this moment of sort of, you know, real connection where they understand how I see the world and maybe it helps them see the world in a, in a similar way or, I don't know, it's not like I'm trying to be of service to everyone, but I, I think I sort of want to, you know, celebrate the sort of absurdities and, and beautiful things in life and that's one of the main reasons I write it is nice to get paid like you do want to write with I do write with hope of the hope of reward too I mean you know publication and books and bookstores but uh I'm just we're trying different tax we're taking different tax now it's I I don't I hope I sell a new novel in the the next year so we're going out with another story collection actually in the next week or two Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I, I write nonfiction, um, and when I think my second book came out, the advance uh, was around thirty thousand um, dollars, which was a, well, That's that was a, that was a yeah. surprising amount. But I mean, nonfiction always pays more than fiction. Um, when I was solicited for my third book, and I I think I'm technically still under contract to Harker Bryce Jovanovich, um, they only offered ten. You know, so even in the nonfiction realm, and, and 10 is not mm-hmm. enough to take six months to a year to write a no. nonfiction book. <laughs> my, my specialty was, was international sports, and there's, there's absolutely no way you could do it on that. Uh, I, no. wrote, I wrote a book about the World Cup, but it required travel and all this. And You couldn't go live <clears> in <throat> Europe for a year on 10 grand? I could Jane? not. What's no, not, not, oh not, in, not, in t- not in 20, uh, be, whatever it was, 2016 or 2018. You'd be hunting <laughs> pigeons with Orwell. and. <laughs> yes, I would be. I'd be living in, in Catalonia with George Orwell. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting that you bring this up, and I know Jeremy has a question, but one of the things that has struck me, and it struck me actually when reading your book, was because I was looking at the credits for where some of these short stories have been published, and it strikes me that one of the, the, the real problems with short fiction right now is there's no place to actually get them published. Uh, unless you are writing very straightforward genre fiction, in which case there's Alfred Hitchcock, perhaps, Ellery Queen for mysteries. I think Ben Bova is still publishing and Omni are still publishing, perhaps, for science fiction. But it's mm-hmm. a real difference from even in the uh, 80s or 90s, and it's still a difference, actually, uh, the British presses still exist to a smaller extent. When there was a lot of lowbrow and middlebrow places that cu- that carried short fiction, you know, any magazine of um, repute, whether it was Esquire or Playboy or Harper's, would buy short fiction pieces, and and they they mm-hmm. no longer do mm-hmm. that. And there was a number of lowbrow magazines, you know, anthologies that would do it, and, well, and those of, don't exist. A lot of people started 
I know like Lydia Millet. I don't know if you guys are familiar. Mm-hmm. She used to write for Hustler. Yeah. Yep, she wrote for Hustler. And, oh, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, I have yes. a friend who was a main editor there for a long time. Alan yeah. McDonald. My mom, I, have a I believe, got from first there too, actually. Well, my mom, who's an author and it, it is also a Midwest author, I believe one of her first nonfictions was published in Penthouse. Yeah, that's so that was about like and it pays well. It pays yeah, well. Those, yeah. they paid really yeah. well. Talking about major corporations, yeah. but the place I feel like there are. Uh, N plus f- one. Yeah, well, there's McSweeney's, there's Tin House, there's a Point. ton of university Atlantic. quarterlies. Well, they just don't pay. I, that's, I think, the thing, and that's the, to Christine's point, I think this is really interesting because we know about N plus one. We know about the Paris Review. We read the LRB mm-hmm. or the TLS. But most, this is a real difference when you used to go to a train station or a bus station and there were magazines on the oh, shelf absolutely. that yeah. people could pick up and it was, you know, six or seven short pieces of fiction. And it might have been crappy. You know what I mean? And nobody said it was great, but it was a place for authors to have room to experiment. You know what I mean? It was a yeah. place to get a paycheck so you could at least survive writing that piece of garbage yeah. to, you know, I've yeah. got to watch my language here. But, uh, you know, to, to work on your novel. And, and you know, Christina, it, it struck me very much, you know, looking at the credits, it's plowshares, it's, it's Antioch and stuff like that. In a way that strikes me as a very frustrating part of our time as somebody that is very interested in short fiction, which you seem to be. It, yeah, I mean, it, I definitely am responsible for the most part in placing my stories. My agent has sent a couple of pieces here and there to The New Yorker, which, you know, we've got nice notes back. Yeah, but, good luck you with know, them. They, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's definitely not easy. And Harper's does still publish stories, and I've tried them, but I've just gone through... Yeah the slush pile and, you know, sent in blind. And I don't, I mean, you just don't know who's reading the stories. It's probably an intern. It's not paid, you know. Did Playboy so, stop? Did they stop doing fiction? Play, Playboy, I don't know. Playboy has done fiction. They've, they've totally relaunched. They now are a quarterly. And they, oh. the last issue that I saw from them uh, after the re, after the third relaunch uh, did not have a, any fiction in it. Because they paid solid, right? They paid said? around 10, 10 k a piece, yeah. Because I, I contributed some nonfiction to them. About sports, and they were outstanding. They were they were brilliant. They were godsends to people who lived in Chicago for a long time. They really <laughs> they, were. Yeah, they have advertising money, so they pay yeah. their writers yeah. a really good wage. And John Updike used to support a family of six on you That's know crazy. earnings that he made publishing stories in the New Yorker, which you know now is just not really feasible. So, I mean, I my I don't know. I mean, I love writing short stories. I do. I have written. Um, several novels now in the last six years, like four or five. I'm not kidding. Like, I kind of take John Updike as my role model. He just would sit in the chair every day, write for a few hours, and you get you get things done. And I've been writing, you know, prose for more than 25 years, so I'm proficient at it, and I can do it. Um, it you know, I think people think, like, oh, there's this magic formula. You sit down, and you light the candles, and you play the, the, um, uh-huh. the Yanni CD, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, but you just sit down and you do it and you do have to block out distractions i mean that's not easy for a lot of people certainly but you know i i'm just persistent but i also really love writing i mean i i tell people like if you're going to be a writer you cannot expect to become famous it might happen but it's you know that's it's not it's just it's even more unlikely it's more likely not to happen Panda Riot poured into Studio A for a session of Searing Shoegaze in a John Daly session. Engineered and mastered by Ari Shellis, this is an untitled song from The Riot, written on February 3rd.
Chicagoans, you, I, the listener, mm-hmm. um, we've all seen them. These gloves, hats, scarves, even jackets, just Littering clothes, all yes. over, all over. We see them um, floating in Lake Michigan all the time. Oh, we do, and, and when we come um, uh, 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 to land, um, we also see them on the streets. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's usually in very cold, snowy weather. It makes you wonder, why, who is leaving these clothes here? Um, and, you know, sometimes it's so cold, and maybe you forgot your scarf, or you sure. forgot your gloves, and you think to yourself, well, maybe I'll just, I'll just take these, I'll put yeah. them on. And Don't- especially, especially, wait, especially when you see in the middle of the snow somehow a perfectly dry scarf, perfectly dry, completely warm scarf, is it, and it beckons to you. It beckons to you a little bit. It, yeah. it does. Um, and you want to put it on, but don't. Yes. Don't. Dear the listener, more the beckoning, the more you shouldn't put it exactly, on. Exactly, dear listener, because you might be falling for none, thing, uh, none other than a fey trick. One of the <laughs> oldest fey tricks in the book, as a matter of right. fact. Um, Since the advent of clothing, this has been going on. Right. And, you know, Chicagoans, <clears throat> we've existed with fey for a long time. Yeah. Um, you just you could look at the mist dwellers of the north side sure. in Oleander Park. Um, some say that the east siders have a bit of fey heritage in them. Yeah. Um, but I think more more uh, applicable to to the bulk of the listener would be just look at the local high school sports teams to know that you've got <laughs> yeah. the mid central gnomes, the uptown pixies, the Avondale Rumpelstiltskins. <laughs> there's there's just this deep undercurrent of of fey. Culture yeah. and Fey um, references throughout our culture here, so mm-hmm. it's it's not as if this is a new thing, but it is worth bringing up. Right. I um, mean, just the just the sun the sun elf uh, demographic, uh, but the north of the Chicago River has just always been consistent, and that's I mean the reason why there's just so many so many hill so many green hilly mountains uh, uh, and and just lavish palaces on the north side. And and uh, parks, for that matter, you sure. know. Um, yeah, beautiful, vast green parks. For, right, that are very easily yeah. to get lost in. Um, yes. And so <clears throat> now getting to this, uh, by p- this this fey trick, they're, they're fey are tricky creatures. And so accepting any sort of possession from a fey essentially constitutes entering a bargain to them. Uh, and by and large, usually the terms of that bargain are uh, – Agreeing to become a thrall of theirs in the glittering realms, uh, right. which, despite its namesake, is not very pleasant to be in. I vacated there once. No. It was not. Have you ever interacted with with glitter? It's just not a pleasant experience. It gets overall. it gets everywhere, and in the in the, and in the in the glittering realms, it burns. Broadcast every Saturday, eight to nine p.m. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.